0: A Klee painting, named Angelus Novus, shows an angel looking as though he is about to move away from something he is fixedly contemplating. His eyes are staring, his mouth is open, his wings are spread. This is how one pictures the angel of history. His face is turned toward the past. Where we perceive a chain of events, he sees one single catastrophe which keeps piling wreckage upon wreckage and hurls it in front of his feet. The angel would like to stay, awaken the dead, and make whole what has been smashed, but a storm is blowing from paradise. It has got caught in his wings with such violence that the angel can no longer close them. This storm irresistibly propels him into the future to which his back is turned, while the pile of debris before him grows skyward. This storm is what we call progress. Hello, and welcome to the Regrettable Century. I'm Chris. I'm Kevin. And I'm Jason. And today we have with us a special guest, Patrick from the Radical Thoughts Podcast. Say hi, Patrick. Hello. And we are going to be talking about Walter Benjamin, myth, rationality, modernity, and a bunch of other disconnected things that we don't really know how to string together in any coherent way, much like Walter Benjamin himself.
1: (laughs) Yep, it's true.
0: So to prep for today, we read a bunch of stuff by Walter Benjamin. We read uh, excerpts from his Arcades project. We read uh, Capitalism as Religion, Oedipus as Rational Myth, and I think that was it, right? Oh, no. we. I, I also read The Storyteller. I don't know if you
1: guys read The I Storyteller. I didn't read that one, though. Storyteller's good. Yeah, that one got tacked in on at the end.
0: Yeah, I think I might have forgotten to tell you guys about <laughs> that one. Sorry about that.
2: I listened to a... I think it was BBC, but some, some podcast roundtable about the storyteller. Um, and I found it not very helpful.
0: Yeah. I, I like Walter Benjamin's like niece or something was involved in it. I think I listened to that like a long time ago.
3: I, I keep, uh, discovering that every, uh, source, I mean, I've, I've encountered a, a handful now that I've tried to, you know, read or engage with, um, that are not, uh, like, sources on Benjamin that are not uh, Marxist. Uh, They're just sort of, you know, academics who regard Benjamin as an important uh, thinker, and they'll talk about him and his contributions. And I have consistently found uh, uh, so far that every single time uh, uh, that a non-Marxist engages with Benjamin, they uh, are utterly incoherent and, like, I, I can't make heads or tails of anything that they have to say about him.
2: It's the same, same thing with Gramsci. I was going to yeah. say, it's the same thing whenever academics try to engage with Gramsci, or for that matter, with um, Marx. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Strangely, though, not with Engels, or at least not in anthropology departments. You know, you, you read Engels, and it's just taken for granted. Like, oh, yeah, this dude was on something. As an anthropologist, or as a, as a person commenting on human development within the, you know, what we now understand as the the discipline of anthropology.
0: Yeah, I remember in the anthropology classes that I took in college, it was pretty much just assumed that Ingalls was right in his, uh, the role of labor and the transition from ape to man.
2: And uh, origin of family private property in the state.
1: Yeah. There are anthropologists who, I mean, there's like minutiae and like, Certain like claims and stuff he makes that are considered wrong, but I think yeah, it's true that with Engels, it's interesting that he's kind of considered you know foundational to the, like the materialist conception of anthropology.
2: Right. Like even even if you um even if you're studying from a, a standpoint that is fully in rejection of what is seen as kind of the evolutionist linear um stagist development of history kind of view that Engels is supposed to represent they still teach you angles like in the same way that you know if you're you in psychology classes they still make you learn freud
1: yeah with um benjamin it's definitely interesting to look at these kind of schisms in part because his life is so already divided between so many influences and when he died prematurely um it, it there's almost immediately a debate over what happens with his legacy particularly between adorno and hannah arendt um and like the illuminations books and stuff i think a lot of that was originally edited by rent and he was he sent her the original 18 theses on history and you can immediately see that there's a tension between her kind of you know more liberalist kind of view a little bit more heideggerian influenced and then the adorno kind of like no this is like more of a marxist bent and it has um this Kind of more materialist conception, and then there's um Sholem as well who, who is intervening and trying to re- resurrect the Kabbalist Jewish um aspects to his thought as well. So there's almost immediately a schism in terms of what his legacy is going to be and what people emphasize in his work. So, yeah,
0: so Benjamin starts off the young Benjamin. I think Kevin, you pointed this out earlier in the um, yeah, in the group chat about him being very Nietzschean in his, uh, in his outlook. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
3: Um, he, uh, I, I believe it was in his dissertation. He's uh, spends a lot of um, uh, time engaging with Nietzsche and Nietzsche thought, uh, or at least his proposed solutions mirror Nietzsche's uh, proposed solutions to the problem of nihilism in modernity, uh, which is to find recourse through uh through art
1: yeah he definitely has a strain that's much more nietzschean um he, he's he still has kind of i mean nietzsche plays a important role in his thought throughout his life as does nietzsche with many of the frankfurt school honestly um he has more contradictory and tension-filled engagements with nietzsche and kind of rejecting so like cuz cuz as we'll see when we're talking about myth Walter Benjamin is inherently opposed to the idea of inescapable repetition. So right off the bat, one of his problems with Nietzsche is his recourse to this. Well, you can just joyously, you know, embrace the eternal recurrence and Benjamin does not find that satisfactory in any real sense. Um, But he does, he's very interested in his, in his first book um, on tragedy and myth and he makes a distinction between uh, we didn't read this but he makes a distinction between kind of the older mythical tragedies that we see in like you know um Antigone and Oedipus and the trauerspiel or morning play which is more like shakespearean tragedy um and the kind of this baroque style post enlightenment tragedy um And yeah, that's a, that's a good thing to notice. His, his early career is also a little bit more defined by proper kind of mysticism. I would say he is interested in Jewish mysticism his whole life, but it's a lot harder to figure out some of his early texts because he tends to go on these things where he's clearly not trying to like say something materialist. He's trying to talk on a spiritual level. And he's also influenced by Sorel. His critique of violence engages with the idea of mythical violence um, he's interested in this kind of like violent nonviolence. That's the spontaneous mythical energies of the the you know the amassed people. Kind of this, and he kind of has a more ties to kind of a Luxembourgist uh, tradition. And he was also in in kind of a student radical too. He was involved in certain uh, student organized. Things, but he stepped down when World War One happened because he was having disagreements with uh, other leaders about the role of the academy and students in the war. But yeah, that's kind of some of the stuff with his early career, and then throughout his life, he gets more invested in materialism and Marxism, even though he connects it with those previous interests. So speaking
0: of Sorel, um, Michael Lowy points out. That Benjamin's ideas of capitalism as religion and his uh, his viewpoint about the the trappings of like the theological trappings of capitalism are more akin to a sort of libertarian socialism or romantic socialism. And he specifically mentions George Sorel and Gustav Landauer, who I am not familiar with. No, do you guys know Gustav Landauer?
1: I'm not as familiar with him. No.
0: Anyway, he was a, a, one of the early theorists of, like, you know, libertarian socialism. He was a German, of course, as as his name would indicate. indicate but he was like a social anarchist and a pacifist, and um, was actually a member of the the, the Bavarian Soviet uh, in 1919. But uh, yeah, so that made me want to look into it. So if you ever want to read about Benjamin and you're having a hard time finding people that expound upon him from a Marxist viewpoint, read Michael Lowy.
1: Yeah, he's he's good. He also has a book called Fire Alarm, which is like mm-hmm. he reads like line by line through the 18 theses on history, which is one of Benjamin's more famous, but also kind of, again, mystical and a little bit difficult to understand um pieces so yeah he's 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 been definitely influenced by benjamin and it's pretty good yeah i would say in clarifying him
0: he's incredibly readable and uh has really profound insights into pretty much everything i've ever read him talk about i'm a big fan we actually read one of his books and discussed it with donald who was a Mm -hmm. co-host of uh, your podcast right yep and that book was the uh romanticism against the tide of modernity which is excellent, and also actually like, you know, refers to Benjamin a lot, being one of the more famous Marxist romanticists.
3: Yeah, I'm really sorry that I missed uh, being able to do the reading and participate in that episode because I, I went listening to it. I, I I thought that was a really, really, really uh, interesting subject and uh, one of the better episodes that, that the you know our podcast has done.
2: Did you find yourself? Yeah, I was bummed. Did you find yourself yelling about what wasn't said?
3: always
0: Benjamin is an incredibly interesting figure he comes from a very similar background to everyone almost everyone else involved in the Frankfurt School being a you know semi wealthy or at least solidly middle-class Jew from Germany. But I always really empathized with
2: him. I, I see him
0: as a, as a very sympathetic figure. I see a lot of myself in him because he's a, a failed son. Um, and he was always trying to make a living as a, a man of letters and could never quite do it. And his dad was always telling him to get a real job. And, and he said that he would rather that would be a fate worse than death. And I <laughs> totally agree. It is a fate worse than death, even though I find myself in real jobs all the time. <laughs> I
2: was going to say, I think about that a lot at my real job. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. About how it's a fate worse than death. Yeah. I think most people do, frankly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I too found Benjamin to be someone that his first appeal to me was partially, uh, a sense of like yeah like i i get it i get what this guy's like worried about and going through um because i too like i went and got a fancy media studies degree um you know fancy liberal arts college i never really managed to get a job that felt very satisfying or creative or like i was doing anything really got great with it um i Mooch off my parents. I want to. I I would like to just kind of like loaf around and just like have profound thoughts. Um, which I mean, I to a. I'll I'll be fair. I think that that one of the problems with Benjamin sometimes is that he can appeal so much to that that you know it. There is a sense of, I'm a profound white boy who wanders (laughs) around and, (laughs) you know, like, um, and I think that can do. I want to be a profound white boy that wanders (laughs) around. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um. And I, think, uh, and I think that that itself can be a detriment to the more original aspects of his thought and some yeah. of the ways that his thought has been expanded and applied to new, to new, new questions. And, and, and it, it can sometimes overlook, I think, the impact that poverty had on his life when he left to live in Paris
3: mm-hmm. and
1: how destitute yeah. he was. There's a letter, I think, where he talks about how he was legitimately considering finding an empty cave on a beach and just packing all his stuff there and staying there because he couldn't afford to live anywhere else. Um, and also, like, his, he was friends with Bertolt Brecht and when he, when Benjamin killed himself and Brecht was told about this, Brecht wrote a poem called The Suicide of the Refugee, which is one of his, actually, my, one of the... I think Brecht isn't always the best poet, personally, but it's actually a very profound and touching one. And I, I think it's been interesting that people have used that poem now to talk about refugees that are in completely different circumstances and not inter-European refugees, but the, the global refugees. So there's, there's, I think, a sense of you can open up the, those experiences of Walter Benjamin and what he's appealing to in, in his own lived experience in, in a lot of really interesting ways.
0: Uh, I think that a lot of t- the times that I've read Brecht's poetry, anyway, um, I get the sense that maybe I would have sounded better in German.
1: I could see that. <laughs> um, It's also, yeah. you get a lot of people that, like, will read Brecht to just show off, like, oh, I read, like, lefty poetry. And they don't engage with, like, <laughs> whether the poetry is good or bad on, like, an aesthetic level, you know, which I think is a, yeah. not the best way to, to engage with art kind of thing.
0: No, yeah. not at all. A lot of a lot of really good art is got some
2: really bad politics behind it. Yeah, for example, have you ever seen a movie called The Stupids?
3: <laughs> no, I haven't. No. I don't no, know what no, that is. No, no one has. No,
2: it's a
0: it's a Tom Arnold movie from the nineties. Yeah, you got to watch it. <laughs> oh, I'll no, pass. No. That's all right.
2: <laughs> no, look, nobody needs to watch it. But actually, um, I don't know enough about the German language to know about translation, and I do agree that, um, you know. Brecht is not necessarily always the best poet, but to those born after, is one of my favorite poems. So if you haven't, I'm not familiar with that one. Is it long? It's long, but it's it's the one that goes to the cities. I came to the cities. I came in a time of disorder that was ruled by hunger. I sheltered with the people in a time of uproar, and then I joined the rebellion. That's how I passed my time that was given to me on this earth. And every stanza is an explanation of things, right? And that's how I passed my time that was given to me on this earth. But here's the last part. You who will come to the surface from the flood that's overwhelmed us and drowned us all must think, when you speak of our weakness in times of darkness, that you have not had to face. Days when we were used to changing countries more often than shoes, through the war of the classes despairing, that there was only injustice and no outrage. Even so, we realized, hatred of oppression still distorts the features. Anger at injustice still makes voices raised and ugly. Oh, we who wish to lay the foundations for the peace and friendliness could never be friendly ourselves and in the future when no longer do human beings still treat themselves as animals look back on us with indulgence just just to make the case that they do exist even though i tend to agree about um brecht the poet but also probably something to do with translation just to be pedantic about these things for a minute i also don't speak russian but i have a a poem. There's a poem by Mikhail Lermontov called "The Sail," and I know of five translations of it, and four of them aren't very good. And one of them is one of my favorite poems of all time. Yeah, translation
3: can. Uh, I mean, poetry is, so. is sort of. I mean, it's like, uh, it's it's a sort of it's a it's a, a an art form that is utterly dependent on on the mode of communication that it uses to. It is an itself. art form. So like if you yeah. translate it, it's not. It you're you're losing the, the essence of the the artwork itself, it, it, it would be like, like, uh, you know, turning a, a book into a movie or whatever, which, you know, the movie can be good, but it's a different thing, you
1: know? It's a shame we didn't read Benjamin's Task of the Translator. <laughs> yeah, well, there about you go. This.
3: He's already, he's already on it.
1: Yeah, where he, he has an argument that like translation inevitably leaves something untold between the two translations, but it contributes to what he calls like the uh, transcendent language, of human humanness or like of humanity it's like like you kind of reconstruct Babel through like the task of translating but it's like the translation always has to evoke something that wasn't there in the original translation but that necessarily leaves leaving behind what was there already wow I love
0: that yeah when I was in college uh, I took a a Roman poetry course where we had to translate Roman poetry from Latin and there are just like a multitude of different ways you can translate certain phrases, <clears throat> and of course you just go with the one that you you have to read contextually, whichever makes sense. And of course, it could be a there's always you know people write a whole thesis on like a single line of Virgil, arguing like what exactly he meant by this, and then use. Other examples from Latin poetry and, uh, you know, contextual examples from Roman history to show that this is what he would have been inferring because it was a common trope at the time. So it's just like when you read the English translation, there's just, you know, hopefully you got a translator that did a pretty good job of it. And that I think probably
2: goes for all poetry. So I, I know <laughs> this is not what we came here to talk about, but uh, this is true just generally about translation. Like one of the great, um, sticking points in left-wing political discourse in the english-speaking world is uh Lenin's famous dictum that you know outside the sphere of uh, uh, what is I forget exactly how he puts it but it's something to the effect of you know unless you look at the whole view of society and you'll and the working class by its own efforts, you know, in struggling against their boss can only achieve trade union consciousness. And that's always Mm -hmm. been meant to understand. It's always been understood as being like, you know, you have to have intellectuals who are capable of seeing the bigger picture. But the word that he uses in Russian is trade unionism, which is the Russian equivalent of syndicalism, which is to say a revolutionary working class socialism, but which doesn't take into account the special oppression of people who are of other classes the necessity of national liberation and so on. So what Lenin's actually saying is like, yeah, anybody can be a socialist. Any worker by virtue of being a worker and in class struggle can be a socialist, can be a revolutionary, can be opposed to the boss. But without taking the broader view of society, might not recognize the ways in which struggles for democratic rights for religious minorities plays into the struggle for socialism. And that's just a translation yeah. error.
3: Well yeah, but I, I I think that to chase this rabbit uh, a little farther I don't I don't I don't think that that, that carries I, I think tra- translation of a like when when language is used to communicate a message you've got language as the form uh, that's carrying a content and you can have a better or worse translation or iteration of uh, in the first instance of the content that you're trying to convey uh, the message the substance that you're trying to convey in the uh, uh, you know as a speaker um and and that translate and the translator could do a better or worse job of um uh conveying that message in their translation yes but with poetry it's distinct uh from communication for the purpose of conveying a message because in poetry the form is the content and when you change the form you are changing the content
0: Hmm. yeah but so i think jason's point still stands though that even with something that should be as clear-cut as a political treatise Hmm. Um, even the slight mistranslation can change
3: the the content,
0: you know, but yeah, you're, you're right about that. Yeah.
3: Anyway. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, but back to Benjamin and um, the issue of good politics uh, or art versus politics. Uh, I, I think, one of the things that I value the most out of Benjamin is, his, I, 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 I still have to call him Benjamin instead of Benjamin. It just feels weird saying Benjamin. It sounds like I'm just talking about, I don't know, like Benjamin Franklin or something.
0: Well, as long as you refer to him as Walter Benjamin then, and not Walter,
2: then I think you're
0: okay. I, I say
3: Walter Benjamin. I just can't help it. Um. Just do whatever the yeah, fuck that's, you want. The, that's what Who I'm cares. doing. Yeah, it's whatever the fuck I the, want. The
2: main thing is to make sure to explain it and apologize for it every time you do it. <laughs> I should.
3: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally derail myself from what I was saying, which is that I. That... We're
2: all individualist
0: anarchists here. You can do whatever the fuck you want. No rules.
3: <laughs> yeah, mom and dad can't tell me. Um. Uh, yep. No what gods, I no masters. Uh, think that I value probably the most about Benjamin is his. uh Refusal to disengage with the value brought by uh, reactionary thinkers who have something important to say, um, and that's that a sort of crude. Um, Patrick, I think what you mentioned something earlier about um how a lot of the a lot of lefties will uh, latch onto any art that has good politics and and sort of just disregard the question of the uh, of the the aesthetic question entirely and i think uh sort of like yeah, how that is yeah. actually like Raging a lot of i think a lot of the i think a lot of the left uh, in, engages with a lot of sort of crude uh you know categorizing of Good politics equals good in every other way, including philosophy, including aesthetics, including uh, anything else, and you know, vice versa with bad politics or whatever. Right. Uh, and Benjamin um, just pointedly refuses to engage with that, and, and ra- instead wants to sort of say that um, uh, if uh, if we leave uh if we leave if if these thinkers have something good and important and true and meaningful to say and we leave that to reaction then you are leaving good important meaningful things uh to uh to the right and um if if the left wants to speak to what it means to be human then we have to embrace all of it right it's kind of
2: like how um i feel about death in june
0: yeah yeah man.
2: <laughs> Don't let the right I, have death in jail. I, I, <laughs> no, but it's it's also something that this is also something we've talked about a lot um, in other episodes about like the critique of modernity, the embrace of the mystical, the um, the re enchantment of the world as like a project is uh you know romanticism the it's a it's a part of the human experience that isn't going to go away, and one Benjamin is a re, is a person who really really effectively illustrates how you can in fact take up that, which is not entirely quantifiable without becoming right. A reactionary. Right. Right. Whereas there is a kind of person on the left that says like there's science and a, and a, and a materialist scientific worldview and things fit in this framework. And if not, it is of the past. It is backward looking and thus is reactionary. And that's for, you know, third positionists. Mm-hmm. It's for Nazis, whatever. Um, And so, then you know who takes that very seriously is the right. They go, yeah, that's right. Well, I
1: think one of the things that makes Benjamin so rich to engage with, but also very difficult, is the particular ways that he really dives into the contradictions of these these tensions and these issues. Um, You know, he he admitted to being friend, not necessarily friends, but to engaging with figures like Carl Schmidt. Who was a Nazi jurist? Who he was most famous for his writings on sovereignty. And Walter Benjamin actually sent him a copy of his um, Origin of German trauerspiel his uh, doctoral thesis. Like actually sent a copy to Schmidt because he was so impacted by him. Um, he was influenced by Sorel, who at that time people didn't really quite know what he was going to that he was going to end up influencing, you know, fascism and stuff. Um, and he was engaging with Sorellianism from that Luxembourgist kind of mass strike aspect, but there is already a tension there. He if you want to talk about was, myth, we <laughs> should
0: return to the concept of myth and Sorel that Walter Benjamin is <laughs> like inspired by. But um, he's, um,
1: he's interacting with Leo Strauss who I think is probably the least interesting of the people he interacts with because Leo Strauss likes John Locke. And I'm like, oh, fuck that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, that's the most like boring banal liberal crap that you could ever like. Um, but, uh, but, but you, uh, Leo Strauss's view of history has an impact on Benjamin because Leo Strauss also has this kind of like, Oh, well you need to find subterranean aspects of thought that have emerged from these thinkers. When you look at them from a modern perspective kind of thing. Um, And so, and then Walter Benjamin, um, in some of the parts we read, he references Carl Jung, but he's obviously very critical of him. But he also has this sense that you get a sense of collective consciousness, collective unconsciousness kind of in Benjamin that's really hard to parse out. Right.
0: Yeah, I was wondering, I was gonna ask you about that, if you had any more insight into that. Because he just kind of mentions it mm-hmm. in passing. But like like he accepts it.
1: Yeah, I this was one of this was something when I was writing my um undergrad thesis i was engaging with benjamin and i wasn't a marxist yet so i was misinterpreting stuff um and not understanding <laughs> <laughs> so your undergrad thesis is i think all i wrong. did some cool stuff with it but uh it was <laughs> it was actually on um Sorry. <laughs> adaptation li- like literary and stuff adaptation so that's why i was reading task of the translator and stuff but um mm. i i was kind of like oh so benjamin believes in the collective unconscious like jung and my advisor was like, well, he also thinks it leads to fascism. And I was confused. (laughs) Um, But Walter Benjamin seems to think that there's kind of a materialist collective unconscious. He's not really interested in trying to figure out symbols or archetypes so much as he's saying, like at the arcades project, the arcades project is about walking through the Paris arcades, which have these glittering displays of commodities underneath kind of because the arcades are built in kind of a tunnel system. If you've been to Paris, they're kind of like subterranean in this weird way. And he kind of, so he kind of has this collective unconscious. That's like the city is the collective unconscious. The fact that you walk through the collective life of people that displays the world back to you has a collective unconscious experience to it. And there's a fact of, he has, he talks about, there's um, an awakening and a dreaming that occurs in your daily life as you're walking through it. Um, and he doesn't agree with some of the stuff he disagrees with jung about in his little fragments he never has a full thorough engagement with him. is like he talks about like jung is wants to separate the dreaming and the awakening but he can, he can only do that by individualize like even though he's talking about the collective he's individualizing it in people and he's doing a freudian thing of being like oh no this is like about your you know background trauma and One of the things that Benjamin really gets into is he talks about like one of the things that he takes from Freud is like this idea that the stuff that we've actually completely forgotten, not the stuff that we're traumatized by, but the stuff that we don't even remember is the stuff that we act out. The things that we completely instinctively repeat throughout our lives are things that we have no memory of at all. And he's taking that and trying to societally think about that kind of analysis Um, Which is kind of interesting. I think, you know, whatever the benefits of psychoanalysis or its shortcomings, I don't necessarily hold to it that much as a real hardcore sociological theory. But I think that that's a kind of analysis that produces his visions of history that's very interesting. Um, And I wanted to point a little, and I think I was going to say one of the things that people get in a trap with Walter Benjamin is, they sometimes do this thing where they go like, oh, well, Walter Benjamin is just an irrationalist. He doesn't believe in rationality because he's so critical of the modern world and the Waterman way of thinking. Um, And it is true, he's very critical of the notion of the enlightened individual person who has a core rationality inside them that allows them to just think through problems on their own. But this this is a... it's one of my favorite parts a, about him. <laughs> this is a quote that he has at the, in the start of the part of the Arcade's project in one of his fragments. Um, to cultivate fields where until now only madness has reigned, forge ahead with the wedded axe of reason looking neither right nor left so as not to succumb to the horror that beckons from deep in the primal, primeval forest. Every ground must at some point have been made arable by reason, must have been cleared of the undergrowth of delusion and myth. This is to be accomplished here for the terrain of the 19th century. So he ha- there's some kind of rationality that he's trying to develop here that is in opposition mm-hmm. to what he sees as the mythical rationality of the 19th and 20th centuries of the Enlightenment, um, and it's very hard to figure out what exactly that is (laughs) because he never really says what it is but it's clear that he thinks that there's some kind of rationality that he actually ties to experience um to communal experience towards remembrance and memory of history and it's very different than you know lumping him in with certain kind of heideggerian concepts of just like well, no, no, we don't want this rationality. We want this romantic return to just this pure being of experience. And there's a connection there, but it's not the same thing.
0: Hey, everybody. Chris here. Just wanted to remind you guys of a couple of things. First of all, we have a Patreon And if you like listening to us and think we deserve $2 a month of your hard-earned money, please go and sign up. Right now, our patrons get access to irregularly posted content that includes special episodes, where we do deep dives into stuff that might be too nerdy for our main feed, extra content from episodes that go way longer than we expected, and impromptu discussions of events and articles that we think are worth a bit of attention. The second thing I wanted to remind everyone of is that we are now part of the Lost Horizons Network, which is a dialectical pessimist podcasting network that includes us, the Regrettable Century, Red Library, and From 78. You can listen to us, Red Library, and From 78 using your favorite podcasting app, or find us by searching our respective names on Twitter and Facebook. We also have a special Lost Horizons Network collaboration podcast, which is a roundtable discussion, including members of all three podcasts. Our network website can be found at losthorizonsnetwork.com, which will be linked in the show notes. Our roundtable discussions will be available to listen on your favorite podcatching app, and also look out for us on social media. Just search for The Lost Horizons Network. And as always... Please remember to subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes. Those ratings and reviews help trick the algorithm into thinking that we are important and have something interesting to say. All right, back to the show. So, from what I'm picking up from Benjamin and talking about myth in in the 19th and 20th century is he's saying that there is a quality of sort of transference of of experience that goes from mouth to ear, that is completely impossible using the methods of information sharing that we commonly use. And that's what, that's what he's saying in the storyteller, right? Is that like the, the, uh, the ability to impart wisdom has been lost by the inability to listen. And he talks about a overload of information being part of taking in any kind of media Uh, killing the ability to listen and the ability to understand and sort of parse the wisdom that is imparted from mouth to ear uh, that had been done in previous... It's a a very romantic view, but I I don't doubt that there's something to that. I just wish that he had written more about it.
1: Well, I think one of the things that's easy to miss with the storyteller is that Benjamin sees the story and the myth as two distinct things that are in opposition to each other. Right, right. Um, because he talks about how the 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 story, um, uh, where does he say, um, in the storyteller, and I know some of you didn't get the chance to read this piece, but he says, um, the fairy tale, which to this day is the first tutor of children, because it was the first tutor of mankind secretly lives on in the story the first true storyteller is and will continue to be the teller of fairy tales whenever good counsel is at a premium the fairy tale had it and where the need was greatest its aid was nearest this need was the need created by myth the fairy tale tells us of the earliest engagements that mankind made to shake off the nightmare which myth had placed upon its chest right he talks about
2: like
0: um, stories of like magic, being able to dispel the darkness to so that the children that are lost in the woods can find their way mm-hmm. home, as like a banishment of myth by the usage of rationality and, and of, it's, of a new myth defeating rationality.
1: And it's 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 um, myth defeating because it's a ra- it's again it's that rationality that comes from the fact that like your the purpose of a story and a fairy tale is to embark like give counsel to someone like sometimes it's imparting wisdom you know sometimes it's moral sometimes it's like don't go out in the woods at night like but like that that's always its orientation it's like it, it fairy tales are always about people in naturalized harsh circumstances using their cunning and their ability to get out of things and sometimes they fail but like there's a there's a certain like you know agency i guess like sometimes the word agency is over like burdened with connotations and Marxism, but like, and when he talks about myth, he's saying like myths are like these super circular things where it's just, this is the way the world works. Nature does this to you and it will continually happen this way. And that's where tragedy comes from. Tragedy is about facing the fact that, Oh no, you can't do anything about this. Like you will be burdened to this torment that you have to engage with. Cause you transgressed on like the path of nature or whatever. Right, um, And Benjamin, Benjamin is very, you know, he's dialectical about it because he's saying, you've got to... That's one of our favorite <laughs> words. You've got to account for the uh, giving of wisdom and being in the situations that you're in and the concreteness of that. Um, but he, he's also very much about a sense of what might be called like... Oh, overcoming nature with nature is how i would put it um he doesn't really believe in an idealized natural world in a certain sense but he does he doesn't want to fall back on just like a naturalized worldview he's all about like no no you have to understand how human beings have the capacity to rearrange nature around them Mm -hmm. um And that's why he, even though he's sometimes read in this primitive sense, it doesn't really work with what he's trying to communicate. And that's one of the reasons why he's so enamored with the modern world, with Paris. You know, Paris, the capital of the 19th century. Um, He's so enamored with looking at these commodities and collecting them and really examining them as if they had treasured um, histories and tales to tell in and of themselves. And saying like, You know, these, these commodities that he has in the 20th century are still made by people and the, the reproduction process, the mechanical reproduction process that's been opened up is one with its own agencies and the, there's people engaging with it and blood, sweat and tears invested in it. You really have to look at that and, and think about what the implications and histories of these objects are that you're, you're dealing with, um, and that's a tension in his work that's a very beautiful and melancholic one um that's hard to some like you know it like sometimes i i i it can be overwhelming to try and think that way if you're just sitting in your room and you just suddenly think about like if I could have a perspective and tale told to me from every commodity and mass produced item in my house what would be the story they would tell me about the people that made it um it's it can become very depressing to think about it, that, that That kind of that view of like, oh, yeah, this thing that's made in China, what is the actual story behind where this is coming from? And he's someone who's kind of trying to think that way.
0: Well, that's part of the project of Marxism is to, you know, de-fetishize the commodity and to understand what it is that makes the commodity worth anything. And all of the, you know, like you mentioned, blood, sweat and tears that was put into the creation of the commodity. And that's what Benjamin is doing here is he's demystifying the commodity that has been sort of mystified by the process, by by capitalism, right? Which really actually leads us directly into, I mean, these are all going, we're all going to weave in and out of all of these writings, like the the entire time. But like everything that he talks about in his capitalism as religion, right? Yeah. Where he, it's, it's like a one, like one and a half page essay he does. Where he just kind of like, you know, spits out of like fire, an incredibly dense and (laughs) wonderful couple of paragraphs about how uh, capitalism is essentially a cult of the commodity, and the the market is worshipped like uh like a god essentially and has its own will that is not subject to. Uh, you know, rational forces. So it's, it's like super interesting and he draws a lot from Max Weber in it, but he sort of like takes Max Weber's um, sort of idealistic conceptions and Marxifies it, which is great. And I think it's a, there's a, there's a book that just came out uh, called um, the enchantments of mammon that is basically 900 pages on this concept that I just started digging into and I think we're going to do an episode about it with Red Library but uh you know just reading the reading the beginning of that um he the the author says yeah well Walter Benjamin talked a little bit about this and uh and it's very true it's just a very little bit but it's it's like it's great uh, I I'll post a link to it in the show notes so that everybody can go read it it'll take you all of like you know 10 minutes well it's
2: it's one of those things that like Benjamin grappled with and then left open like you know, as he does, because, right, probably because it's it's not, um, I, you know, it, during his life, it's pretty unique. It's not like a big field. There are not like a lot of people. It's not like a it's not like the official communist movement is having is having this debate like in forums or whatever in the 1930s as the, as fascism is on the rise. So it's something that just kind of gets like touched on and then left alone only to get picked up by other people like um i don't think that it's very difficult to see a line from benjamin through lukacs to debord right and t- yeah. in a lot of ways especially when in talking about um the the commodity is not just like economic form but also is something that like permeates the lives and minds of people mhm um and like even even like little sayings like all reification is forgetting sounds to me like very debordian but it actually, it's it's Benjamin. So you just see it's like a little piece that like probably took it about as far as he could at the time, but it also shows how ahead of his time he was in terms of his analysis of developments within the society that are not yet quite so obvious to everybody else. And part of that has to just do with the fact that he's got a very unorthodox mind.
1: Yeah, I like it. I think, as I've said, you know, We've said over and over, like Benjamin is difficult fragmentary, and that's partially because one, he never actually had an academic position in his life, so he's mostly mm. just jotting down things that he wants to work on. You know, his his giant magnum opus is just a bunch of quotations and things that he wrote on note cards and then got <laughs> stuffed away in a library when he tried to escape. And and I'm driven I am driven mad by the fact that apparently he had a complete manuscript that he kept with him when he was trying to get into uh, Spain i think it was to <laughs> escape and there's accounts from like the people he's traveling with where they said he had the suitcase and he wouldn't let it go and he kept insisting like this is the only like manuscript i've completed like like this draft it's super important it's going to be the the most important thing I've ever written. It will change everything. We have no fucking clue where it went. Oh God, no! <laughs> <laughs> it's thought that it probably just got like thrown out and burned. <laughs> it's like what? It uh, was. Pr- it's probably
2: what he compiled of all of his notes that we're still compiling today. Yeah, but like he's like, this is
1: what I wrote that is worth reading. Yeah, but, um, but yeah, and 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 then on the other hand, a lot of the stuff they did publish is mostly in the form of like reviews and. And summaries and his thoughts in response to other books and things, which is why he sometimes gets niched as this kind of just literary critic, yeah, um, even right. though he's trying to draw out these other much more sociological and important aspects that you can miss if you're not really engaging with his the tradition and his, where he's in with the Frankfurt School and stuff like that. Um, and his, you know, I think reading that 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 fragment, the the capitalism vs religion fragment, like it's one of those things that it's kind of easy today. Like everyone thinks about like, oh yeah, there's like ideologies and that's, that's what replaced religion, right? It's like, oh, it's your ideology is, is the modern religion. And it can kind of come across like that, but he's just so much more insightful about it. He's like, no, no, like think about it. Like think about the way that people treat capitalism as just this monolithic like thing that solves your problems or or, but it's also, he calls it like, it's the first cult that blames you you know <laughs> right like mm-hmm. cults didn't used to blame you like you could transgress but like the cult of capitalism is literally about how <laughs> you are to blame with the problems in your life you know like you are 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 the individual who who you know you have to pull yourself up and and that is a it's a fundamentally religious way of treating um how humans behave and interact right
2: you can't um you can't really reconcile christianity to capitalism unless it's as the kind of weird prosperity gospel neo-calvinism that is popular in the united states today because otherwise you're left with um be a be in the world but not of the world the love of money is the root of all evil etc like yeah you have to basically like like capitalism is such a successful uh, religion that it has dragged the pre-capitalist religions in its wake and reshaped them in its own image. Um, he said
0: Christianity at the time of the Reformation did not favor the establishment of capitalism; it transformed itself into capitalism, which is essentially what Max Weber says.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and he kind of he kind of takes that Weberian thing and he's kind of pushing it further mm-hmm. yeah, he's, he's, yeah it's a it's a you know that kind of marxian real subsumption kind of thing occurs ideologically with the way that that people think and worship from the very start gets transformed and integrated into something that it caused
0: um, so um the mccara book that i was just talking about the um enchantments of mammon he puts i, I wanted to quote something real quick because i think it pretty succinctly sums up what we're talking about here. He says that capitalism is a form of enchantment, perhaps better a misenchantment, a parody or perversion of our longing for a sacramental way of being in the world. It's animating spirit is money. It's theology, philosophy, and cosmology have been otherwise known as economics. It's sacramental sacramentals consist of fetishized commodities and technologies, the material culture of production and consumption. Its moral and liturgical codes are contained in management theory and business journalism. Its clerisy is a corporate intelligentsia of economists, executive managers, and business writers—a stratum akin to the Aztec priests, medieval scholastics, and Chinese mandarins. Its iconography consists of advertising, public relations, marketing, and product design. Its beatific vision of eschatological destiny is the global imperium of capital, a heavenly city of business with incessantly expanding production, trade, and consumption. And its gospel has. Been than that of Mammonism, the attribution of ontological power to money and of ex- existential sublimity to its possessors. Damn, sounds like a good book. That is a good book. That's like I was immediately drawn into that. He writes like a Catholic, and I think that all this like specifically religious imagery is—I don't know—it resonates with me. I guess those those, arch- those to, to be Jungian about it, those archetypes resonate <laughs> with me somewhere deep within Selective my psyche unconscious. because of my Because of my profoundly Christian upbringing, is what I was going to say. Neil's going to hate this episode. Neil from From Seventy Eight, who who loathes Jung. I don't. I don't
3: get that. I don't get it. I don't get the hatred for Jung. I really don't.
0: Well, he's a Lacanian psychoanalyst.
3: (laughs) Competing school, yeah, sure.
0: Well, yeah, you know, Lacan comes out of Freud, but in a much more materialist way than I don't know. This is me talking out of my ass here. I don't know anything about psychoanalysis. I've learned more about psychoanalysis from listening to Neil talk than I. Yeah, I I mean, Jung 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 and uh,
3: Lacan are both sort of descendant uh, schools of psychoanalysis descended from Freud.
0: Whereas, and Jung took a a hard break from Freud because he was uh, super into sorcery. (laughs) Yeah, and I love that shit. (laughs) Yeah,
1: sorcery.
0: Sorcery is pretty tight. I think so. Um, Sent to alchemy. stuff. I know yeah. he was referred to by the Germans as that old sorcerer on the <laughs> other side of the mountains.
1: There's a there is there's one kind of jungian though other jungians don't like him called James Hillman mm-hmm. who like I I don't, it's, again I don't like really take him like all that seriously in like a hard sense but he's like he was kind of like this like weird jungian who was all like like you know like uh, the Joseph Campbell stuff was like popular uh-huh. And everyone was talking about the hero's journey and he was like, no, 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 this is, this is wrong. He was like, he was like, this, this way of thinking, uh, concretizes the mythical into this one form that like produces like masculine, like patriarchy and like white supremacy. And like, he like inverts it and he's like, you need to like open up to like different archetypal forms and images that are like different. And he, he has this whole thing about like dream imagery you should never try to interpret the image. You should see it and think about your experience to it as it is. He's like, if you see a snake in a dream, like don't try and immediately think about, oh, it's a penis or it's a it's a this or that. He's He has this very like, which I think is a little bit more like Benini. He's like, no, no, like what does it mean to you to like encounter this snake and have a response to it? And like, what does your body and your like reaction do to like open up like your mind? Like don't try and like, immediately symbolize it into like this pre-examined form kind of thing it's wow. very hippie shit but i i find it more interesting than other forms of union <laughs> stuff i'm here talking... to engage
2: with everything
1: yeah <laughs> man turn
2: me on to anything man
1: so along with capitalism as a religion he so he posits contemporary rationality as myth. Yes, it's mythical, and as we kind of said before, one of the things that defines myth for Benjamin is escapable naturalizing of the world. Subjectivity is subordinated. Um, so you're alienated from from your capacities because you are a, in a mythical world that cannot be changed, and this is fundamentally found in repetition. And in, as you mentioned in the storyteller, this is this is why he and members of the Frankfurt School become very suspicious of uh, tendencies in science that are very, very interested in um, quantifying things. And you, they're very suspicious of the kind of positivist, you know, positivist schools that are like the Bertrand Russells and that kind of philosophy. Um, and and you know to today i'll be honest like i think that sometimes they go a bit too far with that but i think that people who criticize them also often forget that was the predominant new main form of academic science that was the form at the time that was making headway so a lot of people have this like oh well you know like marxism is too too academic and like it became too academic and it's not in touch. And what they're actually trying to do is critique what was the, the predominant form of academic thinking um, in, in science at the time. And one of his points is he sees data and information as something that is mythical because it transforms moments and it says, this is just how things are. And you can't you can't think of it in long term impact you can't really take the data or information in that sense and recount it in a way that feels powerful to people um and it's so he sees that as a myth a new kind of mythologizing that is recurring and plaguing um the way that people live and it's i think you know and this is again one of those things that like nowadays liberals will say this you know like you get this like like everyone's isolated and they're they're just looking at data on their phones and stuff. But Benjamin is more profound, particularly just because of the time in which he's trying to notice this and talk about it. And he's trying to talk about it from a much more nuanced radical position that's not strictly about finding authenticity in, in a naturalized state because he's against naturalizing the world, but he's also trying to say that there's a mm, kind of experience and form of storytelling and imparting knowledge that can be done in a way that's much more impactful and powerful so
0: i guess that benjamin writes scattered bits and pieces about his thoughts on myth and rationality and from what i understand the uh adorno and horkheimer sort of expound on benjamin to come up with the dialectic, dialectic of enlightenment uh, a few years later. And Adorno being as critical as he was of Benjamin really saw him as a, as just like a great thinker who just didn't have the chance to solidly engage with what it was that he was thinking, uh, because, because of how short his time on earth was. And, um, I don't know if you guys have any familiar familiarity with the, uh, dialectic of enlightenment, But I think that, you know, I I read a a little bit about it. I I didn't have time to read the whole book before this. And it seems to me like reading that would sort of help you understand everything that Benjamin is saying about myth scattered throughout his writings. Myth and rationality.
2: I haven't read much Adorno. That stuff, it's still um, on my shelf in terms of like things to, to become more familiar with, you know, like. You know I, know, I know he hated jazz. <laughs> and uh, he sort of stood in the way as opposed to joining the fray when it came to the student radicalization in the 60s, as opposed to Marcuse, who um, was Ooh. just better. But um, mostly I'm not super familiar with Adorno because um, I was told not to be during, right. a very imp- during a very impressionable period in my life. And so I just haven't gotten around. But I have friends who grew up coming from the other direction who are like uh very influenced by or very hostile to adorno um but for reasons that i don't (laughs) fully understand yet
0: i refer to that phase of my life as that the phase of being a dumb marxist where i only that's what i meant back when i was a dumb marxist when i only read the the stuff that the sect recommended to me and uh i'm trying to claw my way out of that right now um It it sucks because <laughs> I don't have time to consume everything that I want to consume. Uh, so one of the things I thought was interesting that Benjamin says was that the Greek myths are fundamentally rational. And for this very reason, a man may say without it's making him a bad Christian, that they are much easier to grasp than the teachings of Paul. And he goes on to say, <laughs> what is important is how the modern meaning gains distance from the old and how that distance from the old interpretation is just a new closeness to the myth itself, from which the modern meaning inexhaustibly offers itself up for renewed discovery. I think in this he's he's showing that the rationality that is given to the old Greek myths they impart they impart a, a wisdom they they embody certain truths and I think that he well I mean Adorno and Horkheimer talk about Scylla and Charybdis in the uh, the Odyssey right the two great mythical monsters scylla and charybdis which one way he risks losing his entire ship the other way he risks um losing a certain number of his men from his crew now in reality that's the scylla and charybdis are two points of the strait of messina in on, in sicily where there is a tendency to be either dashed on the, ro- the rocks or disrupted in eddies and whirlpools So those two things are represented in myth as the truth that comes across is that these are dangerous places that you should avoid. And it's forever cemented in the memories of anyone who's ever read the Odyssey. And it's cemented in my memory as a result of that. So now I know if I'm ever driving a boat in the Straits of Messina, not to get dashed on the rocks or sucked in the whirlpool. (laughs) So specifically that myth imparts uh, a certain truth. Myth, Myth is understood when it's accepted as reasonable right um so that ancient myths have a certain reason to them just as modern myths are constructed sort of in the reverse like they start off as reason and become mythical obscuring the reason instead of sort of shining a light on what is reasonable
1: about it am i am i off base here um it's a little hard to say i think one of the problems with that section in particular is that he's partially commenting on the interpretations of andre uh-huh, who he's reviewing um so he's partially giving the expression of this other person yeah and how they're viewing stuff and i think that it is true though that like the the idea that like myths don't make sense in le- like you wouldn't have a myth perpetuate itself unless people had an, a capacity to like accepted as reasonable in some sense yes um i still think that benjamin is still pretty damning of the greek myths in the case of yes yeah. as he writes can it be true that on the very site where the palace of oedipus stood the house that was surrounded by unparalleled darkness horror incest parricide, doom and guilt we are asked to watch the temple of the goddess of reason be erected today uh, what then has happened to Oedipus into the 23 centuries from the time Sophocles first put him on the Greek stage to the present day when Gide has put him on the French stage? Very little. And what has this little achieved? Much. Oedipus has learned to speak. Um, so I think he sees, even even though he, he's, he is inverting it and he's saying like modern rationality has become mythical, he still sees a connection. He still sees a genealogy between the very ideas in the Oedipus tragedy are reproducing the very same horrors that reason produces now. And uh-huh. it was reasonable then as well. And I think he sees beauty and power in the artwork, but I think he still, he still sees that same logic that is embedded in the Oedipal myths to be the pregenitors or what we now have as reasonable. And he, um, it's one of the it's it's also one of the reasons that it's in I think his early Trauerspiel work is interesting because he he again the way that he separates the story, fairy tale and myth the trauerspiel or German tragic drama are these baroque dramas about heroic men, and, and it's like Shakespeare, but he says like yeah, in the Shakespearean tragedy, there is usually a sense of like you know it's naturalized, it's kind of like this person is forced into the circumstances by fate or whatever. But he says there's a new kind of agency there that's more modern and it's more confronted by the fact that you're living in a society where people are suddenly realizing that they have choices that they can make. Mm-hmm. And there's a very specific kind of choice that exists in those dramas, even though they're tragedies, that doesn't exist in the other ones. It doesn't exist in Oedipus and Antigone and those ancient mythical ones. So he's very interested in in the the tragic but i think that he still has a much more critical view of these kind of early myths than he would see um in some of the descriptions here. he giving.
0: does say that uh the the relationships of oedipus's household are all the domestic mi- miseries of the petty bourgeoisie magnified on a monstrous scale <laughs> <laughs> i guess he he kind of sees oedipus as uh, a figure that redeems himself, though. He says that Oedipus turns his back on them to follow the trail of the emancipated people who have con bef- gone before him. That is to say, the younger brother from the return of the prodigal son and the wanderer from the fruits of the earth. Oedipus is the eldest of the great escapers who take their cue from the man who wrote uh, something in French. Il faut toujours sortir n'importe But I think that translates to uh, like
1: uh, he, it's oh, translated I I, here yeah. in my end notes. Uh, it's in a... The, I have the footnotes. It says it's translated as one must always make a departure no matter from where, which is a free quote from the preface at the which... entry. Okay, okay, cool. That he's talking about.
0: I was just going to do the shitty translation of French <laughs> <laughs> that would have been less... Google Translate. <laughs> like, my... Bare bones knowledge of French, based on like how much Latin I know. <laughs> <laughs> hey,
2: which uh, which Gide book is he is he talking about? Is it um most
1: of this most of this essay, I believe, is referring to his the uh his André Gide's book, uh, Oedipe, uh Oedipus in German, it was translated as Oedipus oder der Vernunftge Mythos um but that that quotation it says is from a different book called Les Nourritures Terrestres sorry
0: about our french pronunciation guys
1: i think uh looking at this i kind of like to bring up one of the most difficult things in many which is the One of his his most, aside from the Eighteenth Theses, probably his most famous essay, which is the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, where he brings up the idea of aura in relationship to mechanical reproduction, Mm -hmm. and this is one of the tensions that I see all the time. Is I know when I I had this when I first read it. Is people read that and they think, oh, so he's saying. Original pieces with Ara are good, but that they overlook that in the end Walter Benjamin does side with mechanical reproduction as being the more liberatory force, which is very hard to try and reconcile when he's also talking about remembrance and acted living and imparting of knowledge to people. It's hard to figure out how that exactly relates. But I think that one of the things to keep in mind with Menyamin is when he's talking about aura, for him, aura is something that is devoid of political content. When something is erratic, it has no political implications because it cannot be contested in any way. And it has one particular area where it is found, which is it is found in a ritual that is cut off from the rest of experience or it is found in, you know, the palace as the oil painting that hangs on someone's wall. It's in the museum. So when he's talking about mechanical reproduction, he's talking, that. that's why he has that point about like fascism is the aestheticization of politics. Marxism should be the politicization of art as it exists. Um, and both of those, like one of them means that your fascism is attempting to put an aura on every aspect of society. This is, everything is where it is, where you're supposed to go see it. It's naturalized in that sense. It, it can't be political because it's just what the community does, and that's how it is. And anyone who opposes that is wrong and should not be, is, it should be eliminated.
0: Yeah, anyone who opposes that is like opposing the God-given or God or like ordained by by the forces of nature or by the spirit of it. soil
1: of the blood yeah going oh. against
0: that is going against something that has been preordained and is right in its essence
1: and so with benjamin he's saying when you strip the r off something you're seeing it in a more like he wouldn't use the term authentic but it's almost like there's a more authentic beneath the authentic um which is i, I am i'm kind of mincing words there but it's you're seeing something in a nakedness. Um, he uses a lot of times the terms of like history is like a lightning bolt or history is this thing that rushes past you and you get a glimpse of it. Or he, I think there's a, there's somewhere where he says history is like you catch a fish, the fish comes into your net, but you have to use your muscles and your effort to pull it up out of the water. And that's what happens when the, the aura is gone. The, process of mechanical reproduction is the pulling of muscles when it is politically used to try and take images and the splashes of history that come to us and to make it available in broad daylight for people um and to arrange it because you have to make a concentrated effort to arrange it and find a place to put it it can't just be in the place that's been ordained by society um so that's just what I, I think it's interesting when you start to see that in terms of how he's referencing this to rationality and myth, because a lot of people will read him and think that what he's saying is, oh, we just want to go back to erratic, so-called authentic objects, which he doesn't really want. And I think that there's a lot of complexities in terms of what he's saying here that, because on the one on the other hand, he's definitely not like a technological determinist in He's totally opposed to the idea that, oh, progress just happens because stuff keeps getting technologically better and it it will just eventually become socialism. Like that's He's super opposed to that. That's his whole point of history. Um, He has a quote in one of the fragments that was never put in the theses. He says, um, Marx was wrong. We don't want to make the train go. We want the proletarian masses to reach the front of the train and pull the brake. And what he's saying there isn't we want to pull the brake and then history stops and we all get off and we go live in the already somehow existing, you know, quote unquote, primitive communism that exists. I think what he is saying is like, once you stop the train, you look at what the engine is made of and you ask, why are we using these things as fuel from a natural world? You ask what are the tracks that we laid down and where are they leading us and where can we put new tracks and go? We will ask who is driving the train, who is like, it's, it's about the fact that suddenly you have the opportunity to live in a world where people have reflection and autonomy in their lives for directing it in new ways. And I think that, you know, I think there's a lot of conflicts that like, when you look at things like colonized people settler colonialism, like obviously the correct answer isn't to just be like, well, we're going to get all these auras and rituals and things that connect people to their communities gone and just have technology, woohoo, it's all going to solve the problems. Um, and I think that Benjamin is trying to investigate that from a Western perspective that can be opened up and discussed. And that's one of the reasons why Lowy is such a good mm-hmm. uh, person to look at because he's, he's talking from a Latin American context where a lot of Latin American struggles involved indigenous peoples. And he explicitly in his writings on the, the theses on history relates, uh, Benjamin talks about how, you know, revolutionaries would go out and shoot at clocks in the French revolutions to try and stop the clock from ending on the day of the revolution. And Lowy takes that and he says that there have been times where, uh, indigenous peoples have gone out in their original indigenous clothing with bows and arrows and shot at clocks that were erected to, you know, celebrate the, the domination of their tribes and like these you know these national like you know uh, independence days kind of celebrations. and I think that's a very Benjamin way to look t- to look at history. it's you're drawing these these flashes of insight and you're saying suddenly there's a break in what is assumed to be the world as it is, and it's it's completely different and sometimes that that is both moving beyond naturalizing rituals but it's also looking back and remembering the horrible atrocities that have been committed continuously throughout history to guess where we are right now. And that's a very hard way to think about history because it's exhausting, but it also forces, but it forces you also to be, you know, it, it's the, the angel of history. It's this famous angel of history. You have to be constantly moving forward while looking backwards and it's painful and hard to do.
0: That I was going to say the, the angel of history description that, he has is very much so doing what he would advise us all to do with art. Um, but what I was going to say is that like, he, that's, that's where his, uh, early Nietzscheanism sort of sticks with him is the, uh, break with the belief in, uh, just the, the, the linear march of progress that sort of capitalism takes for granted. Um, and that, a sort of vulgar marxism takes for granted as well um mm-hmm. and he he breaks with that in the same way that nietzsche does but well, he doesn't like follow it through to its uh, nietzschean conclusions he mm-hmm. he he sort of like he ta- he takes it and uses it for his own purposes his project i think is all about just criticizing the triumphalist positivistic uh sort of bourgeois view of history and I, like you mentioned just now is that he he's attempting to collect the detritus of history i think we talked about this in the gothic marxism episode to collect the detritus of history the 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 memory of tragedy and horror and use that as fuel for driving the project forward into the future right for capturing the utopian vision looking back at the the torture that's inflicted upon the slave and the the peasant being ground underfoot under the foot of the Lord and the tragedy of the proletarianization of the peasantry and whatnot, everything like stuff like that. And he says, that is the fuel that we look back to and take as inspiration for our drive for the, for our view of the future. And it's much more so the romantic remembrance of a few mm-hmm. of potential futures that were stolen from us that drives us. than it is the, uh, grand utopian projections of the of the the political thinkers that will help us, like help gird our loins for the fights that we're going to have to fight uh, moving forward.
1: I think it's interesting because, you know, he's he's always talked, Benjamin, you always hear about, you know, he's a, the messianism. Yeah. Benjamin. And what's interesting is people kind of, you have to remember that he's he's coming from a Jewish perspective and he's, he's actually being a bit heretical to some extent insofar as, in Jewish messianism, you can never say anything positive about what the future, you know, redemption is. You you can't say who the Messiah is in any extent. It's all it's always negative. And he's doing that, but he he the only like real positive thing that he asserts is the utopian. And this is kind of it's also Nietzschean because Nietzsche has this idea of redemption in the form of like you know joyful individualistic spirit. And he's kind of collectivizing and he says, no, the one thing that we can say for certain is that redemption comes when the people who have been trod upon by the historic movement of society are finally able to overcome the burdens put upon them and, and establish a communist world without domination. That is, that is the project. But at the same time, we cannot look forward while doing that. We can't, we can't lay out, you know, the, the the recipes for the kitchens of the future right 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 he still says you can't that he still has that that's what mark says too yeah yeah he still has that negative aspect he says you know we know we know that the only redemptive force is everyone throughout history is is redeemed everyone who has who has been forgotten by history is redeemed by a society with no domination no control um which is utopian so we know that much but we still can't look forward while trying to accomplish it we have to be looking backwards while moving forwards so noticeably we also cannot be trying to go backwards at the same time
0: yeah no one shall know the day nor hour not even the angels in heaven nor the sun but only the father
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's pretty that's pretty apt yeah
0: and i Um, guess the father here in this in this specific metaphor is uh the fucking world spirit <laughs> the motor force of history
3: <laughs> the big other yeah
4: sous le ciel de paris ont une chanson elle est née d'aujourd'hui dans le cœur d'un garçon sous le ciel de paris marche des amoureux Leur bonheur se construit sur un air fait pour eux. Sous le pont de Versailles, un philosophe assis, deux musiciens, quelques badauds, puis des gens par milliers. Sous le ciel de Paris, jusqu'au soir, vont chanter d'un peuple épris de sa vieille cité près de Notre-Dame parfois couvain de drame, oui mais à Paname tout peut s'arranger quelques rayons du ciel d'été l'accordéon d'un marinier l'espoir fleurit Au ciel de Paris Sous le ciel de Paris coule un fleuve joyeux Il endort dans la nuit les clochards et les gueux Sous le ciel de Paris les oiseaux du bon Dieu